Right. And today's guest on Experience by Design is Megan Burns of Experience Enterprises. And Megan has over 20 years helping organizations create world-class consumer experience programs. In 2014, she developed the Customer Experience Index that guides organizations across many industry benchmarks and improves their own customer experiences. But more on that, Megan helps organizations transform their cultures to put both customers and employees at the center of their missions. Yeah, no, super exciting, uh, and we're excited to get to it, so we hope you enjoy. Like guys coming in off the beach to get something, and then we'll say, no shoes, no shirt, no service, and flip-flops count, but the guys come in not wearing a shirt, and if they've had a few beers on the beach, I have seen people get um, a little riled up about that. But I was also talking to my mom. I went to see her over the weekend. She's in frontline retail. And my comment to her was, I, I showed it to her and I was like, "That that's not that much different than a normal week for you, right? Pre-COVID. And she's like, yeah, no. It's, she's like, I deal with obno- equally as obnoxious and ridiculous people over equally mm. as ridic- less ridiculous things all the time. And she's been in frontline retail for 40 years. So. I, I do think, and I, I, I hit, oh, wow. I hit the record button. So there we go. Okay. But I, I think, cause I think cause the interesting lead in, right. It's, you know, this idea of, um, to what extent do we want to go the extra mile for our customers when people seem like they're perpetually drunk right now? I mean, so you talk about the people on the beach, they had a few beers, you might excuse that, but now there's like a cultural inebriation, it seems around measures that, make perfect sense on, on the face of it, pardon the pun about the mask, but at the same time, people having this really adverse reaction and to what extent do companies have to prioritize their employees and their well-being over that of whatever their customers want to do? It's funny, the messaging that I was listening to just as I was listening to the news and interviews with different CEOs, it does feel like they are putting employee health and safety first and customers second which I think is at least the ones I've heard, which I think is the appropriate um, way to do things. But yeah, there's this sense of, uh, I've always had a mantra that says, if you want be a, if you want good customer experience, be a good customer. And not just in the sense of spending money, but if you're uh, reasonable and thoughtful of the human beings that you're dealing with, they are more likely to be reasonable and thoughtful with you as opposed to coming in and screaming and yelling at someone for something that is uh, not their fault and and maybe they can help you, maybe they can't. You can be equally frustrated, but how you express that frustration, right? Experience, there, there are two people in an experience, at least. It makes me think that the world would be a better place if everyone at some point in their lives waited tables. Weighted tables are worked frontline retail. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. If you, you know, we talk about frontline workers being medical, but as we were just chatting about frontline, if you're working retail, especially around Christmas, um, or if you've ever waited tables, then I think it, you know, it carries to this day, whenever I go out to eat, which has not been in a while. And of course, I always feel like I need to stack my plates after everyone's done eating and mm-hmm. make sure the table is kind of arranged so that the person who's busing or the waitress or waiter can move the stuff off quickly. I mean, I've, I haven't worked in a restaurant in probably, you know, 
35 years. But it's, that's, it kind of stays with you, right? This experience of, I remember what it's like when people are mean to me and they, you know, you go to a table to bus it and it's just a disaster. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. even looking people in the eye, uh, I worked in a department store all through high school, the same one that my mother had worked in for my entire life. She doesn't work there anymore. Um, I still take things off hangers and if I'm waiting in line, fold them up with the tag out. Um, I just, (laughs) A, it gives me something to do and B, it makes it easier and faster to ring people up. Um, But I have in the few short years that I worked in retail, I was threatened with bodily harm for enforcing a company policy, a company return policy. And I was 16 at the time. Uh, and working in the children's department. And, uh, so the kids was, are right there as a parent's threatening you. Wow. There's, there's yeah. like, you know, the child's was, right there. It was related to a return. Um, you'd be, well, you wouldn't be surprised because you're you, but um, it was related to a return and a form of identification that the, the corporate policy did not accept as a valid form of identification for a return that that person took offense to, and she threatened to be waiting for me when I came out of work in the parking lot. You know, you just triggered me a little bit, Megan. You just triggered me because my mom, you know, love her, mean it. She would be a loud customer. She's a, she would be that person when I was with her where she would, you know, aggressively argue, not so much I'll wait for you in the parking lot. That's like next level stuff. But she would be that loud customer. And I'm still dealing with that literally today. And I'm 50. Yeah. So I, I think like maybe there's a whole area of like therapeutic work for those of us. I mean, there's there's programs for those who like grew up in an alcoholic household, those who grew up in different kinds of mental illness. I think there should be a therapy for those who grew up with parents who were aggressive shoppers, because I think there is a trauma that needs to be resolved around that. Well, and it's a question of pick your battles. And when we talk about employee (laughs) empowerment and employee engagement, that's actually one of the things, you know, in certain situations, if you teach people how to read other people, you know, when is it worth the, you're, you're balancing risk and you're balancing, you know, financial loss and taking a return that is not a valid return. And nine times out of 10, you can, at least I could always tell when someone was, you know, trying to play the system. Um, when do you just say, okay, I'd be happy to take that without giving the company a reputation for being a pushover and, and being taken advantage of. Mm. It's a tough spot to put a 16 year old in, let alone a, a grown manager. Yeah. It's interesting too, because it, it, it makes me kind of, you know, question, how do we, you know, when we think about customer experience, how do we, you know, sort of build in safeguards that, uh, you know, let the frontline human act like a human but let the backline company act like a company. And, and you know, where do, where do they meet in the middle and the, where there's like a kind of a, a, a good space, you know? And when it comes to something like a policy or return policy at a, at a department store or even at a restaurant, right? You know, this oh, my food's cold or there's a fly in my soup or whatever, you know? Uh, and if the customer is mean or nice about it, you know? I mean, there is research like, you know, in, in psychology and some social sciences too that, that point out, you know, simple stuff like when you're nice to somebody, then you're more likely to like acquiesce and say, sure, okay, I'll, I'll either do, I'll process the return and take your food back. Um, so, so thinking of this, I actually wanted to, I wanted to um, point out a, a lovely blog that you wrote that I found about three things that Sesame Street can teach us about customer oh. experience. Because <laughs> to me, that was my, my way of thinking of, of kind of the entree of, of where are we in this space and how can things like, you know, Sesame Street or kids show teach us about what it means to be human <laughs> and have good customer experience. Yeah, it, it's, it, I loved I loved writing that post. Um, and it's funny, Sesame Street now is nothing like it was when I watched it, you know, 40 years ago. Some stuff is the same, some stuff is not. But uh, just the whole, I, I was surprised going back and watching the COVID special that prompted that uh, at how thoughtful and deliberate and sort of now that I know the social science side of being a good human, how much of that I could see coming through uh, in the content that that they had created. And yeah, some of it is just um, not to keep coming back to, to mothers, but 
when when someone asks you what's the best advice you ever got, what I usually say is my mom told me you never pass a class, you pass a teacher. Hmm. And yeah. And the idea was, you know, uh, this was, I think, in response to uh, a teacher who basically didn't want us to think, who wanted us to regurgitate answers from a book, uh, which I believe he had written. And, um, you know, the what should you do? What's the right thing to do? What's the most useful thing to do from a learning perspective versus what do you have to do to pass the course? Uh, the lesson that those were were two different things. It also reminds me, there's a set saying, right? You um, you don't quit a company, you quit a manager. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that, it's that, you know, person that you're most in contact with that can divine to find much of the experience that, that you're having either for better or for worse. Yeah. I, um, I did, uh, I gave a talk once where I was talking about, uh, actually I wrote a blog post about this too, a guest blog post for work human about, uh, using journey mapping to understand the employee experience. And one of the things I suggested that people do is don't map. The tendency is to create a journey map of the employee journeys that are easy to draw a box around, onboarding, hiring, some sort of training. But those aren't the things that shape an employee's experience. I was like, map the journey of a typical staff meeting, a weekly staff meeting, right? Mm. What kind of notice do you get? What's the agenda? What is the experience of sitting there like? Uh, it'd be really interesting to have maps of that experience pre and post remote work for people, but that experience and that journey short though it may be mm. is something that happens much more often than onboarding or performance reviews. And I think it's a much better, uh, representation of sort of the overall employee experience than any of these other things that we tend to gravitate towards because HR owns them. No, that, that is really interesting too, because it, certainly in user experience, you see the same kind of thing too, where it's you're trying to map out how would an, an app or, or a website, you know, how would you, how would the, how would the user experience this? And you tend to, you're exactly right. You're going to map out the onboarding experience. You're going to map out the the email newsletter sign up. You're going to map out the, um, you know, how do I do like the, the fundamental activity of the thing? And it, like it's mapping it once, right? Really, you're right. Like the mundane is things that happen every day, and that's the actual experience of when you're using something. And for that reason, I mean, it it, it actually I never connected these pieces, but it, it makes total sense why you see 80% drop off of people using apps after the first time. You know, after the first three mm-hmm. minutes sometimes, um, because they're using it for the first time and they get that onboarding down pat, and then three minutes later you're like, okay, I don't really need this right now, and you never return to it because there's no actual like integration with your your, your life, right, with the mundane as it were. But you know. Yeah, what if we pause and say, "Hell, oh, wow, that 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 meeting is not fun. That performance review is actually a kind of horrific experience, right? That feels dehumanizing. Um, you know, that I'm a number on a sheet to you, and and um, you know, what is that like? Is, is what an interesting idea uh, to 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 bring the mundane, you know, kind of out. And that, that's you know, my social scientist hat feels very happy because that's that's what we're that's what the studying is about, right? It's like who are we every day, not not who are we at these uh, only at these special moments. Yeah. Uh, such an important piece. Well, and Adam, that that whole train of thought actually comes from, I think, sort of the the unique place that I came from in terms of arriving at customer experience. So I'm a software engineer by training. And one of the things you learn very early in your in a working career is that all of the cool design and architecture, I want to do the big picture stuff, set the software up from the beginning. If you get to do that a handful of times in your career, you are lucky. Um, Most software lives in maintenance mode for years and years and years. Most changes are not the big fun redesigns. I think about user experience redesigns and things like this too. You know, what does a design process mean in the course of maintenance? And there was a Freakonomics podcast episode where uh, that was in, there were two. One was uh, in defense of or in honor of the mundane and one was in honor of maintenance. 
And those both really resonated with me because mm. from, uh, from my software background, and I think I bring this and I've seen this in experiences, the vast majority of the life cycle of an experienced customer or employee is made up of things that are not going to be wow, delight moments, uh, but are, are still important. That was actually what prompted um, when I talked to groups about what should you be shooting for from a customer experience perspective. Uh, I don't believe you have to delight customers every time. And I think saying that is disheartening to people. I tell them that their goal should be to be consistently good and strategically amazing. Hmm. Love that. Did you, did you trademark that? Uh, it's in process right now. <laughs> no, I think, I think it makes so much sense because as we've discussed numerous times, the, you know, this idea of, you know, the experience economy, the wow moment. And, I, you know, we were actually chatting with some other folks on the podcast and, you know, this idea of no, not really. Most, a lot, most of the time, people just kind of want to get through in a predictable way that causes very little cognitive load and is very predictable. And they don't want to deal with, you know, the whole thing. I mean, not everyone, and this is going to be an old reference, Adam may not get it. But no one, not everyone wants to go to Chi Chi's and get, you know, a sombrero for their birthday. <laughs> Some people Adam, never want to go to Chi Chi's and get a sombrero for their birthday. I mean, it's old ref. Adam, did you get that reference at all? <laughs> yeah, I you got did it? not get that reference. You did not get it. See, so I mean, no, I do not. remember, I mean, no. Megan, do you remember this? Like when mm-hmm. that first started? You know, it's like you go to Chi Chi's, like this, this I don't know, Tex-Mex place, which is offensive to Adam since he's from Houston. And That's why I've never get, been. You know, they, yeah, everyone would come out and clap for you and put the sombrero on your head. And and they would give you like the little, like, I don't know, ice cream with the thing on the stuff on top, the crusted stuff on top. And God knows I hated that. I mean, I hated that with the, with the, the burning light of a thousand suns that I also, you know, it was like too much. I didn't want to have all of this stuff happening. Um, it, it was against my introverted nature. And so for me, this like, wow moment was, was horrible. And, and I think it goes to, you know, picking your spots and knowing your customer and what they might want to get and not just assuming what to do, but actually asking them what they might like. Yeah. And it's interesting too, that in the Chi-Chi's days, that was new. Right. It was not something that happened at every restaurant. Now every restaurant chain has their own version of the song, their own special clapping, their own little thing that they do. You know that if you go out to dinner with someone around your birthday, there is a risk that whoever you're with might go to the server and ask them for that. And if they know you right. well enough, they should know. My friends all know, don't you dare do that. Um, so it's... It was a wow moment, but in some ways it's not a wow moment anymore um, because people have gotten used to it. Yeah, it's, a, it's less of a wow and more of a WTF moment or yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and I think that this is like the experience arms race, right? You know, mm. this, this, this desire to kind of keep, and maybe I should trademark that, this one upping of, you know, what is it we're trying to deliver and what is it we try to do? And one could almost think of like a, like a Saturday Night Live skit or skit or sketch or something like that, where it's like this constant making our, comfortables, our customers feel uncomfortable under the pursuit of greater and greater experiences that we can then use for the purposes of our branding. And our, and our pseudo distinctiveness. Well, we're living it right now. Um, no one thought or expected that they needed things in two days until Amazon told them they did. And now that Amazon can't deliver things in two days in, in, for perfectly reasonable reasons, uh, people are sort of up in arms about the fact that, you know, I can't have this in two days. I never really needed it in two days. Uh, so some of those problems are, are problems of their own making, but we've also talked, I've talked to a lot of people lately about the dominoes effect, which is not the domino effect, the political phenomenon. It's the, I can track my pizza being made at dominoes while it's going blah, blah, blah. Why can't I track my, whatever it else it is you sell, you know, whether you're buying a podcast mic or, uh, you know, six figure shipment of supplies, 
the fact that you can have that visibility in one thing, one company stepped up that arms race, has a ripple effect to many, many more companies uh, than I think a lot of people realize. Well, I just bought a belt sander about an hour ago, and it's not here yet. There you go. And it's really irritating because not that I, I would be using it right now because I'm talking to you and I couldn't talk to you while using a belt sander. Yeah. I don't think that would work. But I want it that now. Right? It, you know, in this moment of immediate gratification, um, you know, this, like you said, the, 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 the training of people to have greater expectations that can never be met because they keep increasing. And if, it, you know, customer experience is this idea of expectations and interactions – then if the expectations consistently increase, then the interactions also have to try to meet that unless the companies themselves do something to correct. And I think that gets us back to wear your damn mask in the store because it's not just about what you want. It's about also what is sensible or um, proper or feasible in any particular situation. Yeah, it's and we saw Amazon actually going pulling back in the other direction and saying, "Hey, if you're willing to take a longer shipping date, we'll give you a dollar fifty credit." So they were sort of pulling back on or giving people an option to to go back on things like that. But I was reading an article over the weekend. Uh, Amazon has lost a lot of business to manufacturers because people are ordering from the manufacturer because they can get it faster maybe in seven or eight days. And I actually have done right. this with a couple things myself. Their default would be to go to Amazon. They see how long it's going to take. They go to the manufacturer's website. The manufacturer has stopped shipping through Amazon and can now deliver it faster. And Amazon is actually losing business uh, back to some hmm. of the manufacturers. Poor Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I feel bad for the guy. And their NPS yeah. score, I was on a webinar recently where the in that survey, the NPS score was negative 44. What? That's not good, right? I no. mean, I'm not a math guy, but I don't think that's good. No. No, that's not good. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, do, do, I mean, I'm just curious, like, you know, don't. You're not required to have this memorized. Like, what were some of the metrics that that, that were that brought it so low? Was it was it you know customer wait time, delivery wait time? What was this is this was Amazon customers or was it Amazon like resellers? Would you remember? This was Amazon customers, okay. and this was uh, this is a company that does um, uh, just sort of emotional context research. Mm. Like one of the interesting things in in this webinar was also they were measuring how many emotions people were, were reporting just in general. And it went from an average of one or two emotions per person to people reporting they were feeling four huh. emotions at once. So just sort of a, which makes right. intellectual sense <laughs> that, you know, that we're living in a more emotional moment. Um, but it was mostly delivery time mm. and not, not being able to make, meet expectations that had been set. And in the early days, it was extreme on the other direction. Like I ordered something and it was going to be six weeks, which would be extreme even for, you know, ordering from a small mom and pop manufacturer. Um, so there were definitely some adjustment pains that happened in the beginning, but yeah, there are people who don't know and don't care about the, supply chain and the logistics of running a business like that. They just think it should happen. You know, when it comes to customer experience, I'm really kind of curious about how much does the customer need to know in order to be reasonable? Uh, you know, and that's, that's not, not, I know it's not a zero sum question, right? But it's like, as you're, as we're saying, it's like, you know, once Amazon set the expectation that two days is normal for delivery and it's not, people freak out. But then, you know, but we wouldn't say in general, six weeks is a very long time anyway, right? Before that, the postal service could give us something usually within 10 to 14 days, usually, um, if not quicker. And so, um, but also again, thinking about retail and restaurant too, like how much does the customer need to know? Because even the dominoes effect is, is really an interesting phenomenon right now too. And, and you know, they're, they're on my mind anyway. Just looking back at their other PR scandal years ago when they first YouTube first came out and there's the employees that were like hogging a loogie in their pizza and they thought it was funny to film it and that just destroyed their their <laughs> Domino's brand yeah. for a long time, you know. Well, and they've been Domino's has been very candid in their rebranding over the last couple of years. They've been really candid about all of that kind yeah. of stuff, product stuff, um, brand stuff. But uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I I think. 
I don't know that there's a, there was a great uh, piece in HBR last year, the year before, I don't know, time kind of blends now on uh, operational transparency and the power of operational transparency for Mm -hmm. customers to understand the value. Like you don't appreciate why it costs what it costs for us to deliver this service because you don't see what goes into this service. Like you just sort of take for granted and that there's a lot more to it than you realize. So there's, was that sort of even before things changed, but we've seen, we've always seen from a customer experience perspective that giving people enough information to understand why they may not like it, but they may, it it makes them less, if you at least explain why, um, the uh, cable companies was a, a good one. They needed your address before they could even uh, show you plans. And people thought that that was, well, why should I have to do that? And then at least I learned and they started explaining that literally the service options depend on what side of the street you're on. So this is not, this was not the company trying to collect more information so they could market to you. This was information they needed to be able to answer this question. Um, I see it in uh, when we do culture transformation too, when employees understand that the reason they need to turn something around in 24 to 36 hours is because the customer expects it in 72 hours. And here are the three or four other things that have to happen before and after. Suddenly those deadlines aren't arbitrary, right? They're part of a bigger picture Mm. that someone can understand. It may still be too fast. They may still not like it, but at least they understand that this is not some random number that some Dilbert manager pulled out of the air from somewhere. And in your, in your, in your own consulting work, I mean, we, you know, you come up against this desire to change that's vocalized, right? Such as we need to improve teamwork. We need to be more transparent. We need to be more customer centric or employee centric. How easy or how hard is it for companies to actually then deliver on that? I mean, the, the, the talk, the expression of wanting to change versus actually doing the work of change. It's almost like going to therapy, right? It's like, you know, yes, I want to change. Well, are you do, willing to do the work? No, not really. I, you know, I want to change, but I don't want to do anything differently. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not even just a want to. So I've, I've said for years um, that customer experience is for a business what eating healthy and exercise is for a person. I don't need to show you data really on why customer experience matters. You get it, right? We can argue over the specifics. Uh, Most people could rattle off to me five or six things they know they could and should do to improve customer experience or teamwork or culture or things like that, but we, we don't do them. And I think it's a lot of the the same reasons. So when you're looking at people who say they want to change, but they quote unquote, don't want to do anything differently, how do you leverage the environment around them to get them to do things differently without there being any intention involved? Uh, One of the things I, uh, when I work with executives on leading change is we sit down and make a plan of what meetings do you have and what questions are you going to ask in those meetings that you've never asked before? Well, that's interesting. Well, how do they respond to that? uh, They usually say, oh, I never thought about that. And it's like you can stand on a stage at a town hall meeting and tell people that you expect them to think about customers. And they'll go, yeah, okay, we should do that. But if there's no one asking them questions about, well, what does the research say or how did the customers respond to this, they're not going to find themselves in a moment where having or not having that information has any consequences. But if people start asking and not in a threatening way, not in a, hey, I'm quizzing you kind of way, but in a, these are the things I care about to make decisions kind of way, um, that does more to get people to, for the next meeting, make sure they have that information than any sort of rule or policy, you know, knowing that the VP is going to ask about it. And it really is an interesting thing from a professor's perspective in terms of how you ask a question. I mean, am I asking a question that the hearer interprets as there is an answer to, I need to answer correctly, or is it I'm seeking your 
own insights, right? Yeah. And that can be a real, I mean, you can say the same words, but the way in which it's delivered can have radically different effects on how people are hearing it and how they respond to it. So I'm imagining, especially for executives, trying to get them to be reflexive at some point, you know, be like oh, self-aware of what they're doing and how they're doing it as a way of, you know, changing your behavior, the executive's behavior to have a greater effect on everyone else's on the culture of the organization and the context. Yeah. That's actually my primary strategy for change management with clients is instead of, I mean, most of them are already doing a a top-down type change program and they're, they're rarely terribly effective. So when a client Mm -hmm. comes to me looking for help with culture change, I say, okay, that's fine, but we're not going to do posters and signs on the wall and things like that. We are going to focus on the people who have influence and being strategic. This is actually trademarked. um, I call it the moments of change framework. Thinking about how many moments of change are you creating for individual employees where the employee consciously or unconsciously goes, oh, it really is different. Oh, I need to have different information. Oh, um, you know, this, this process is different. I see this now. Change happens by virtue of, of hundreds of those little moments over time. And if we think instinctually, not instinctually, if we think deliberately about how to create those for more employees in the course, and this goes into the status meeting thing too, you know, the course of their everyday activity, I personally think that's a much more effective way to get people to change the way they think and the way they behave. Mm. Can you, could you share maybe an example of what might be some of those small little pieces that we change that's like, so example, not using a poster or not using a town hall meeting where everybody comes together at one time and says, all right, folks, we're changing, we're changing the game. You know, what are some examples yeah. of like little small things that we, that people could do? Um, words. Words. I, I am a word nerd. Uh, and, and as someone who, I mean, word most nerd. of, mo- oh yeah, I have a feature in my, um, every Wednesday on LinkedIn, I have a, a series called Word Nerd Wednesday where it's just, sometimes it's customer experience related. Sometimes it's just me being a dork um, and looking at the definition or, or um, history and origin of a word. But going in uh, and saying, uh, we were talking earlier about frontline and who counts as the frontline. Uh, I was talking to a group once and I said, okay, if, you're, if the customer facing employees are the frontline, that's a military metaphor. Hmm. The frontline is in direct contact with the enemy. So if your employees are the front line, does that make the customer the enemy? Yes. No. I don't know. And no one had ever thought of it that way. Um, But looking at ways you can, uh, I do this, I have a whole workshop around ownership, uh, who should own customer experience. And the first thing we do is start out by asking people to write down what does it mean to own something? And in reality, ownership is part authority, which is what everybody wants. I want to be able to make decisions about stuff and control my own fate and part accountability, which is about, you know, who is either on the hook to do work or who gets in trouble or loses their bonus if something doesn't go right. That's the piece that nobody wants. And depending on the culture, I'll come in and say, is customer experience ownership Uh, a tug of war or a hot potato. And that tells me right away, people can answer that right away. And that tells me which one they emphasize more. If it's a tug of war, everybody's thinking on the authority side. If it's a hot potato, everybody's thinking on the accountability side. And so just in having those conversations, asking people, what does it mean to own something? Okay. When you have, uh, when you are accountable for something, what does that mean? Like, let's play out a scenario. Forcing people into that degree of critical thinking, uh, they they very often come to the answers themselves, but it's a level of specificity that no one has ever asked them to get to. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, they can't they can't unsee that. They can't un- unknow that context. One of my favorite moments is when I deliver a talk or I speak to a group and then I go back a month later 
to meet with their leadership team and I hear people repeating my own words back to me <laughs> and using terminology that I introduced, that's when I'm like, okay, it, it's happening. That's when you pass out your word nerd t-shirts. <laughs> it works. I don't have word nerd t-shirts uh, yet, but. Totally uh, get, gotta get t-shirts. I, I, sh I should, I should get t-shirts. I was just uh, managing kid control. Isn't working from home awesome? I love it. <laughs> I, I live by myself, so I'm I can't really complain. I've been hearing these, these reports that people are going to prefer working from home after this is all over. And I really want to meet those people. And I'm wondering if, they, if they're the ones like, you know, who do, do not have children. <laughs> what's going on because I mean I'm, I'm all for working from home if my kids can be in school that's what I think a lot of people are thinking and I was listening to um uh Cushman Wakefield is that the the real estate company corporate real estate company one of their executives was talking about people say they want to continue to work from home two to three days a week right so there are people who are like I get so much done and it's really, it's unusual for me to think about people not being, quote unquote, allowed to work from home mm -hmm. in an environment where in theory they could have, because I've never worked for a company like that. I wouldn't work right. for a company like that. Um, so I, yeah, I think it'll be a little more measured. The novelty wears off after a while. And for those of us who have the luxury of doing it right, it's hard to be a quote unquote frontline worker. And we've learned this is a bad term, but, but a customer facing role, you know, I, I couldn't do retail. I couldn't wait tables from my home. I mean, you know, in terms of someone's yeah. got to be at TJX, someone's got to be RTJ Max, someone's got to be at, you know, bringing the plates out to serve you. And so, it, it, you know, part, being a word nerd as well, although not to your extent, it is important and interesting to think about how we like to think about we're all in this moment together right now, but really the experiences of it are, are very distinctive and unique based on the, as we would say in the business, the intersectionality of people's lives, right? Gender, race, socioeconomic status, region of the country, family situation, et cetera. It, you know, and then as an employer, how do you try to manage those those needs based on these seemingly endless array of of characteristics which can manifest themselves in in a lot of different ways yeah and i've talked to employers uh, a handful of employers who are being strategic about the best thing we can do for some of our people is to not bring them back yet because if we bring them back part-time, they lose their unemployment or they're making right. more on unemployment. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are making decisions that seem, you know, without any context, like they might be uh, negative, but they really are thinking about what's in the best interest of their employees or the, um, you know, the, their ability to get childcare, things like that. And I, this is a really fascinating moment around employee experience. I'm teaching this course this summer again. And this idea of what this is showing us in terms of how companies orient to their to their workers, and so you have in some places, um, states like in Ohio, saying, "Well, that the governor there has done a really good job in some ways." But one way I think is questionable is where he was saying, "If workers are deciding not to come back to work, then they should be reported so they cannot get unemployment." So you have like that, even though the workplace may not be safe or risky, or they might have you know, some kind of outlying condition versus places which are maintaining stay at home orders or Mark Cuban saying, you know, no, we're not going to come back. It's too soon. I'm going to pay for my employees um, regardless so that they can still maintain financial solvency without risking their lives. Yeah. And this just really great divide between. You know, who are workers there? For, you know, what's the company there for? Are the workers there to service a company or is a company there to help the workers? And I think this really does get to employee experience. You know, what, what's the relationship and who has control or onus over the other? Yeah. And the social contract. I mean, this is a lot of this is where I, I totally nerd out and I don't get into this in, in most of my corporate work. But experiences and how we interpret them are based in part on larger social contracts that right. set expectations. 
And the social con- part of the reason employee experience has been so contentious in the last couple decades is that the the social contract between corporations and workers has changed without anybody, you know, necessarily saying that. And I grew up in a multi-generation household. I grew up living with my um, greatest generation grandfather, my baby boomer mother, and me as Gen X. And just to see the difference in how we thought about, uh, you know, as I made various career moves, the difference of how those were interpreted based on your definition of success and your expectations. Um, I remember one of the the first company I worked for got rid of uh, health insurance in retirement for any who'd been anyone who'd been there less than five years, and I'd been there less than five years. My parents yeah. were wigging out, and yeah. I'm like, I wouldn't expect a I wouldn't expect them to pay for my health insurance in retirement, and b I was just, I think 24, 25 at the time. If I'm still here when I retire. Just shoot me, you know. Right, I, right. I had no intention of being there forty years later. Um, but Megan, it's a good job. You should stay. They're nice oh, there. No, my grandfather explicitly said, "You don't quit a job with the phone company." I was working for AT and T, and it was like, "You don't leave a job with the phone company." What's better than this? You should stay, get comfortable, get a pension, be fine. That kind of thing. Yeah, pensions. The Rotary Club. What are those? My grandfather worked for Massey Ferguson forever. Um, and, you know, it's you know, the idea for like my students coming out of staying at a job for, for, like you said, more than five years, maybe, you know, that used to be like the, the resume red flag. Well, you've jumped around a lot. Now, if you stayed at a place for a long time, I think people might look at that and say, wow, you stayed there for a long time. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Seven years was my shortest tenure once I got out of school. Um, seven years was the shortest time I was with one company. And, um, yeah, I am considered kind of a slow mover. I think I've been at my, my job for 21 years. Well, I think it also not to get philosophical, but, um, I actually gave a webinar on this the other day and the reaction was a a lot stronger uh, positively. I mean, I knew it would be good, but it was a lot stronger positively, positively than I expected, on how to manage your own personal employee experience. Hmm, And the the topic was, or the title was carving your path to success in a chaotic workplace. And it was largely based on some of my own experiences sort of dealing with stress and burnout and and, uh, things like that. But this idea that employee experience is something that is done to people when you work for a company and that you have no control over it, I was challenging that mindset. And most of the people were employees of, of bigger companies. And I said, yes, there's a lot of stuff they can they do that you can't control, but you can control how you experience that and how you react to it. And it was based on a, a friend of mine who, when I was going through all of this, everyone said, you know, oh, get a new job, get a new job. And I said, well, first of all, I'm so exhausted. Uh, I can't, I'm so burned out. I can't look for a new job. And it was the middle of a recession. And then a friend of mine who is a psychologist um, said, okay, well, if you can't change your job, change yourself in the job. There you go. Mm. And that was one of the most profound moments of my life. And I now use that when I'm helping people less in my professional coaching, although there's no reason I couldn't, uh, just to say, you know, you can manage this experience yourself. You don't have to cede all of your control to the people around you. Hmm. That that, that makes me wonder too, like, I guess we're still in the philosophical train a little bit here, which is a good good train to be on, you know? Um, you know, is is when we're thinking about change management, like within an organization for employees or, or from leadership, uh, and and you as kind of an external coach, as an agent, as as a as a facilitator, as a leader, um, you know, how much of you know for change to take place, does it require you know leadership to say we want to make a change, or does it you know is it kind of a you know as you said before, like the idea of like the top down as a strategy rarely works super well, you know, cause that's still, I mean, if you, if you want to go back to the military metaphor, it's still kind of like, it's still kind of this paternalistic model of like, we'll tell you what to do. We know best because we're on top. 
you know, it's, it's the because I said so model almost, right? Um, yeah. And and like you know, you know, we I think we all remember as at some point in our childhood we're like, wait a minute, why is because I said so the reason that this is the way it is? You know, because I said so. Yes. Oh, okay, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and ironically, I have friends in the military who are or military veterans who are the biggest because I said so is not good enough. Mm. Like now that they're out, they're they're the biggest rebels. Uh, you would meet, but I'm sorry, Adam, I cut off your question. No, 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 no. Oh, good. Yeah. Just, just thinking about, you know, so when it comes to change management, you know, how much of it does it have to be kind of internal versus external, I guess. And like, so I think that's a really interesting idea of, I mean, now I want to go find this webinar. Maybe I can, I can send me the link later. Yes. Um, uh, since as a self-employed person that like, this is, this is very important for me too, to think about what does it mean to make my employee? Like this is my office, you know, listeners can't see it, but um, you know, and, and like, that's a really interesting contemplation also like whether you're working for yourself or working for an organization or when you yourself have clients right then that that that, that's a different relationship also but then if you're working with clients who are in a big organization which is is what we're talking about here also um you know what does it mean to manage that experience so i guess you know from whence must change come i guess is is the deep philosophy right (laughs) uh i mean you guys would know this better than i do being you know actual social scientists i i study this for um you know, for, for fun, not for fun, but, uh, I don't have a degree in it. Um, I describe the human brain as the ultimate legacy technology. (laughs) Companies complain, Oh, we have all this legacy technology. I'm like, well, guess what? The human brain is the ultimate legacy technology. You can't rip it out and replace it. We don't completely understand how it works, but what we do understand about how it works is that change happens. You, you cannot force people to change. Um, You can only create conditions in which they change because they want to or they have to. And so I personally, I think that from a change management perspective, the top-down consequences-based, do this or else, Mm. is the least effective long-term Bottom up is helpful in some ways if it sort of reshapes social norms. Top down can reshape social norms. It's basically about how how do we create an environment around people that elicits different interpretations and decisions and behavioral responses out of them. I often tell um, executives and change leaders that I work with, I said, your job is not to get people to change. Your job is to engineer the opportunity for them to have their own epiphany. Yeah, I really, really, really like that because I've been trying to um, apply like a social movements theory framework. Being a sociologist, you know, you know, we, we have classes on social movements, collective behavior. It's kind of our thing. And so looking at things that are more socially significant voting rights act civil rights act women's rights act you know gay equality act whatever it is um to what extent that there are leaders associated with those movements but at the same time the leaders knew that they themselves could not be responsible for everything that happens and they had to create a vision but then people create the space for people to come in and do what they were going to do with that. I think a lot of my, one of the things I say is, you know, management is the wrong word for what the job needs to be. Mm-hmm. You're not here to manage, you're here to facilitate. And the more you can shift to facilitation or community organizing, another term I use a lot, how can we apply the social movements framework that you were just kind of describing for organizational change, whether it's around customer centricity, employee centricity, or any other kind of cultural shift that organizations need to undergo? Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of power in using, in understanding how natural change happens. Like I always tell people, it's not that humans can't change. We change all day, every day. I can't remember the exact moment where the word selfie entered my vocabulary, but it did at some point. And I knew what it was and I said it. Um when we look at the change that happens organically and how does that change happen and can we use that, right? Can we work with human nature instead of lamenting it uh, to try to drive change around specific things? I think that's a more 
Uh, it's a slower approach, and slow is not what people like these days. But interestingly, since the COVID pandemic, this message of uh, slow, steady, human-focused change initiatives has actually been much more palatable in business than it was beforehand. Do you think that's going to last? I, I don't know. I think what's going to happen, and Gary, you would know this better than I do because you work with college students all the time, but uh, some other friends of mine who are professors have been telling me that the current uh, undergraduates, freshmen, sophomores, are actually much more in attitude like my grandfather was in terms of being conserv- financially conservative and things like that, in part because of the f- formative events that happened. They were born right after 9-11. They grew up during the Great Recession. And I think the kids who are growing up now and who are going through this, I think it's absolutely going to affect their perception of what it means to work, what it means to be a good employer. Uh, And so I don't know, you know, in the short term, in the next five to 10, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, we'll probably still be dealing with some of this. 10 years from now, might we have reverted back to the mean a little bit? I think so. But long term, I think the enormity of what's going on right now is a formative experience for younger kids could have a significant impact. I also do think about two things with my students, at least. One, I was told that they were raised online. They're very comfortable with being online and that they communicate with each other freely online. But at the same time, when we went to classes on Zoom, we were told, well, you can't expect them to be able to do group projects online. I was like, you know, and they had a really hard time managing their education and themselves online. It was, you know, yes, both things can be true at the same time, that they are raised online. They're very comfortable with being online, with having technology in their hands. But at the same time, that's not the experience they were looking for in in, in terms of their education. Yeah. And that just because their games online doesn't mean they want the professor to be on a screen. Yeah, I was going to say that that same point that that you know, it's, it actually comes down to this, this phrase that we say a lot is the experience ecosystem, right? That they're comfortable with being online, but their experience of being online is not an educational one necessarily. I mean, they may read and, you know, consume an educational podcast, uh, but they may not like be thinking about classes online, right? Because that's not been a place they've gone to quote school. Uh, and, and so it's, it's interesting to think about, yeah, how, how, do, the, how do you get, uh, how do you sort of re-kajigger a, in, in an environment, right? In this case, and it feels weird because the internet to us is this like vast infinite space um, to many people. And it is, but at the same time, you know, if it's never been used as an educational spot for you, then to use it as a classroom would be very disorienting, I would think, you know. Um, in the same way that it's like, you know, if you've ever been to a museum uh, and you just go for fun, it's, it's different than if you're going there with your class, for example, you know, in elementary school. Um, and it's like a slight difference, but still like there, there's something that's different about that. So it is, I think, an interesting piece to, to contemplate um, that as big as the Internet, you know, is perceptually um, if you've never used it as an educational space, I can I can I can see why that would be a challenge. But it's funny, too, because I mean, I, I've done the same kind of thing where it's like I'll be working with 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 clients or uh, some colleagues and we'll use Miro, for example, not a product placement, but just like a, a digital whiteboard software, you know? Oh, I, I use it too. Like, I love it. I love Miro, right? You know, <laughs> maybe it is a product placement. Miro, you could sponsor this episode if you want. Well, and I'm not a visual thinker. That's the funny part. So, <laughs> yeah. But just see, like, but when, but when people use it, they say, oh, wow, this is amazing. We can all have a whiteboard together, you know? And it's like, there are these funny aha moments like that, where it's like this, like a fairly simple piece. I know it's complex code, but the simple piece of software, like what it does is yeah. simple. Um, and just see people like change. And they realize, oh, this is what I can do here. It's very interesting. Well, and Adam, you know, I agree with you. But when and when I see that, and I think this goes back to having grown up in a, a multi generational, fairly change averse, technology averse household. My grandmother was a terrible cook, and she blamed the electric stove. If she could have a gas stove, she suddenly would have been Julia Child. I'm with um, Grandma on that, by the way. I yeah, have a stove um, and I hate it. I do love gas stoves. Yeah, it was a, it was a little <laughs> bit of a chicken and egg thing, but. Every time I see these conversations happening, 
I see basic human experience, basic mm-hmm. human goals and needs, right? We need to understand something. We need to see something. We need the experience of being human is what it is. It is facilitated by or enabled by different types of technology and in different formats and in different ways. But when I'm not sure what the right answer is, I always just bring it back to um, what's the experience in the most sort of literal sense of that, right? What's the sensory experience? What's the meaning that people are assigning to that? And how does doing this through a piece of technology, what does it add? What does it take away? I think that's sort of our, our, um, our touchstone, our Rosetta stone for the understanding this whole process. Mm-hmm. Another another point on the technology and, and the youth, the young people today, the kids. I, you know, I we were chatting about this offline or online before the podcast. At what point did individual liberty mean ex- extreme selfishness? Mm-hmm. And so you have these videos out there of of women or men or whomever taking this very privileged position of I'm not wearing no mask. Um, I want things done this way or that way, and then raising a stink about it. And I do wonder if. Young people, I, I do wonder if my children, they might be online, they might be seeing this and saying, is this how I want to act? Is this how I want to be seen? It does create this potential awareness, you know, this reflexivity again around what that behavior looks like and what its impact can be. And so we, you know, d- does the magnification of these moments of extreme selfishness, I would call them not individual liberty, right? You know, this idea of you have to wear shoes and a shirt and to go into a store, no one's protesting against that. There's a speed limit, no one's protesting against that. We have rules for a variety of reasons. Do people look at that and say, you know what, we need to do better. We need to comport ourselves better and therefore does that influence how they carry themselves forward? That's one of the things I also wonder about. Yeah, and I think it's giving us an opportunity to have especially with younger people, but even as adults, a conversation about that natural tension that has always existed and will always exist between individual rights and collective good. Uh, And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, um, but it's a question of balance. And this is probably the first time that there's been a concrete, immediate threat to human life, you know, we always say, oh, our response system, you know, is developed when we were running away from tigers and we're not running away from tigers anymore. Well, this is the closest thing to running away from a tiger, um, you know, that most people in our generation have had. Uh, And when you put it in that context, how does it, um, how does it change the way people think? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a good, actually a good framing to bring it back to this idea that the company's responsibility in many ways is for this collective good, not just what you want as an individual customer. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I, I, there's, there's, more, there's more at stake than just what this, in, you know, this individual doesn't want to wear a mask. It's, well, I have employees. I have other customers. I have reputation. I have brand. I have, you know, you know like where I think it was Herb Kelleher, the famous story of the Southwest, um, you know, founder. Someone wrote a letter saying, I don't really like uh, how your 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 flight attendants joke during the you know wear your seatbelt talk and he was you know wrote basically back and said well I thank you for your letter and I I welcome you to fly with somebody else yeah you know my job is not to appease appease every individual's um, while customer experience is about trying to deliver unique experiences in some ways there's a larger thing at stake there's a larger social contract using your words at stake and there's a larger collective employee or experience ecosystem at stake that the company has to be mindful of in trying to construct all of these things at the same time, which is why I think, you know, Megan, for you, I would imagine that there's a lot of business in in terms of the consulting opportunities that you would have available. Uh, There is this, I mean, this was a trend that was, had hit the accelerator about 10 years ago. And now I think it's, it's really driving it home, especially the employee experience side. I always bring it back to, um, I listened to the book Principles uh, by Ray Dalio. I quite honestly, I'm a reader, but I was intimidated by the thickness of the book. So I ended up listening to it. And the core principle that 
nature solves for the ecosystem. Nature solves for hmm. the collective good. Interesting. Um, I, I think very much jives with what I've seen, whether it's, you know, the tree outside my window or just sort of the, the human ecosystem. And I think that's what we're seeing happen. We're seeing more movement back toward that people solving for the ecosystem as a management activity and as a leadership activity. Um, yeah, and, and people are, necessity is the mother of invention. There were, um, the CEO of Panera Bread was on one of the, I think it was How I Built This, one of the podcasts, and talked about the fact that he called the CEO of Walmart and said, we have a bunch of people who can't work right now. You need a bunch of people. We've already vetted these people to know that they have good hospitality huh. skills. Is there a way that we can facilitate Panera employees, Panera associates going to work for Walmart to fill that gap and then coming back to us? And as a company, they set up a whole direct pipeline and separate process for Panera employees to apply for positions at Walmart to sort of shift that demand across the ecosystem and then with the full expectation that as Panera's business ramps back up again, those people will come back. And there's no reason that companies can't do things like that in a normal, you know, when we're not experiencing a global pandemic, I just don't think people either think of it or they have the the courage to suggest something like that that other people might think is a little bit unusual you know we, we haven't asked this question but i know other podcasts ask this so i'm just kind of curious from your perspective if there's any like one or two books or articles that, that you've been reading lately because like you mentioned ray dalio that that folks that are interested in the customer experience space or employee experience experience space that that folks should definitely be checking out and it could be your blog <laughs> you know? that's the first place to go is <laughs> number one Experience enterprises. Well, the, uh, the book that I'm in the process of reading um, is is definitely one. You know, it's hard because I've been influenced by so many different books, uh, but one of the ones that I think is is really helpful is um, Nudge, mm. uh, which is by um, Richard Thaler and I believe Cass Sunstein. Um, and actually Richard Thaler's book, Misbehaving, it, it's kind of his story of the history of dragging traditional economics into the world of behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. It has the, um, it ends up giving you a really good overview of sort of the core theories and thoughts of behavioral economics that, that exist and how they've developed. Um, but those things together, I think, have really helped me understand how experience shapes behavior in a way that's been incredibly practical to understand and apply. Cool. Summer reading list. It's now summer, right? Exactly. Right. It's now summer. And yeah, ironically, I'm actually, I normally read all nonfiction. And for the last uh, 10 weeks, I have been reading the Little House on the Prairie series books that I got as a 10-year-old and never read, begged for and never read, um, much to my mother's chagrin, and I decided to dust them off. And honestly, uh, I think those have given me more perspective on the current state of things than any of the nonfiction books I've read. Mm. Yeah, the, it, it's it's amazing, too. It's one of those, I mean, through throughout graduate school, I... I you know, because you, you read nonfiction and like, you know, most I, I think all three of us mostly read nonfiction. Right? But then when, when you finally say, you know, what, I'm going to read that that novel or this this fiction series and you realize, holy crap, like there's so much human insight in 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 some of the best stories, you know, in, in things like Little House on the Prairie. Like there's a reason that that's still a resonant set of novels now. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Long Winter. I just finished the book, The Long Winter, and the entire back half of it is about the breakdown of the supply chain. And they even talk about the fact that trains are a bad thing because it's caused people to be less self-sufficient because they depend on the train coming Mm. to bring groceries and what happens when the train doesn't come. (laughs) And there were times when I almost had goosebumps reading it because the similarities and the parallels to, you know, not being able to get toilet paper 
except in their case, it was, you know, wheat and, and actual food. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I think that's uh, that's a good place to to end, right? The more that you know, toilet paper on the prairie, <laughs> or little company on the prairie, or something like that. Little TP, yeah. <laughs> little TP on the prairie. Yeah, that, that, I think that yeah. there's. Uh, I think I think there will be um, books written about this moment, and toilet paper will figure heavily into the plot line. So that's my yeah. that's my projection. Uh, that'll be the meme that comes out of it. Well, we can all, we can only hope that's that clever, right? Well, yeah. Megan, thanks so much for chatting with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was truly my pleasure, and thanks for doing this. You guys are putting a lot of great insight and things that make people think into the world, which we need more of. Once again, we want to thank Megan Burns of Experience Enterprises for taking the time to talk with us about her work and professional mission to help companies make better experiences. And really, who doesn't want that? So make sure you check out her Experience Enterprises website. You can follow her on LinkedIn and reach out to her for your next keynote speaking event. We'll have all these links in the show notes below. Now, if you want to continue the conversation, as always, we love hearing from you and talking with you. So if you want to think about how do we design better experiences, customer, employee experiences, go to our Experience by Design LinkedIn page, also in the show notes, and contribute your thoughts. We can't wait to hear from you.